When you face disappointments and pain in life, where do you turn? We just run to our our crutches. Mm. Another shot of caffeine, another escape on the internet, another fill-in-the-blank coffee date with a friend for women. I mean, those things are not bad, but ultimately that pain can be an invitation where God says, I want you to just sit alone with me and tell me about your pain and find out who I am. That's Sarah Haggerty, and she's author of the book, Every Bitter Thing is Sweet. And she'll be sharing more from her perspectives and from God's Word about trusting Him in the midst of difficult life circumstances. This is Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, and your host is Focus President Jim Daly. Uh, John, last time we heard about Sarah's early marriage challenges and uh, then struggling for years through infertility and the death of her father, who she was extremely close to. And today we want to talk more with her on how she learned to trust God even in that pain. Mm. Sarah, let me welcome you back to Focus on the Family. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. First, let me ask you this. Every bitter thing is sweet. Where did that come from? In the middle of some difficult circumstances that seemed to be surmounting, I was sitting at my kitchen table and was reading through the Proverbs, and I came to Proverbs 27.7. And it says, the satiated soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. And up until that point, I felt kind of a fire behind my bitterness. Like, I have a right to be mad. Things are not working out like I thought they would. My womb is empty. My marriage isn't working out like I thought it would. I'm married to this entrepreneur, and I don't know what tomorrow's going to look like in terms of a paycheck. And I felt a little bit of kind of umph behind my bitterness. But I read this verse and had quite literally an aha moment where I thought these circumstances could be forged for something so much deeper. What if this is making me hungry and this kind of hunger is something that only God can answer? And what if I'm going to find him in a way I've never found him before out of this? Uh, and it's so good. Last time we talked about the death of your father, mm-hmm. um, his diagnosis, and eventually his death of brain cancer. We talked about the heartache of being infertile mm-hmm. and being a woman who wanted children. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a passion that you had. Again, people can uh, place any heartache in that sentence where they're at today. The question is, I think, how do you refrain from becoming bitter and not go after God the way that our hearts want comfort and peace and ease of life? But God is saying it's not always that way. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile that? I think for me, the... the Key was the invitation to get alone with him. And and outside of my conventional understanding of what it meant to spend time with God, I was spending time with God in my quiet time in the morning. But that 30 minutes didn't necessarily address the deep bitterness I was feeling at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and 5 o'clock in the 7 p.m. baby shower. I think for me, I saw this invitation of God saying, bleed outside the lines here. Meet with me after the 7 o'clock baby shower. Cancel your dinner plans with friends and cry over your Bible. Like, let me into those places where you might otherwise run to something else that's just going to fuel your bitterness. Spiritually speaking, do you feel like the Lord is pushing in that direction in our lives? Yes. Is he moving us there so that we can deal with our stuff? Yes. As opposed to looking the other way and letting us wallow in our comfort. What if there was this whisper always in the backdrop 
of our lives saying, come away with me, come meet with me. I think it's there. I think he's doing that all the time, giving us these invitations going, your five kids have you up to your eyeballs in chaos (laughs) and you want to go call a friend and just vent, come away with me. Are we not hearing it or is he, how come we miss it? in the ways that we do. I think we might want to say it's the noise of life, but more realistically, I think it's the noise of our internal life. We don't want to hear come we, away with me. We do, we don't and and we don't know that he can be so tender in those times that it really makes it worth it to want to get away with him. So you and your husband Nate, you've gone through these difficulties. Um, you're not having children and you both mm-hmm. want children, so you turn to international adoption. Uh, talk about that story and what happened. Well, we always had a heart for adoption. We lived on a farm with some friends for just a period of about six months while our house was being built, and they had adopted two children. And the first night we were there, both of us had this sense, we're here for more than just a place to stay. And we watched kind of this amalgamation of lives, three biological children and two that had been adopted, and really started to think, this is going to be us one day. We want to adopt. But we had no idea then that we'd have struggles with infertility. Mm-hmm. And so we naturally thought, well, just have biological children and then adopt. And then when we were faced with my diagnosis and we had the choice to kind of go a medical route or potentially adopt, it felt to us very obvious, this is our time. Let's pursue international adoption. And and that process, uh, you ended up adopting. But talk about going from wanting children so badly for many years and then all of a sudden you're instant mom instant mom and how old was your first adoption how our first two children were three and a half and one and a half and so we had you know one day we didn't have children (laughs) (laughs) and the next day we had a family (laughs) which i suppose is true for everyone but to have two and two that were talking and and not diapers and and had personalities it was it was a lot at once it was it overwhelming or how did you manage it at those first two were not overwhelming to be honest i had been there was so much inertia behind getting them you had enough energy and drive yeah it was the next two that i think maybe so you had these two and then you and Nate decided let's get two more we, well our first <laughs> our adoption of our first two was pretty seem getting there was not the process took much longer than we thought and that was really difficult but once we actually brought them into our family the process of bringing them in was pretty seamless and so three months later we were thinking this is great and like you kind of do with everything we're so great we're great parents we could do this again <laughs> and, and the lord used that sweet our sweet kind of blindness to we were ready then we signed up again and, and two years later, we brought home two more from Uganda. And that was Uganda on the second time. First time you, you... First time was Ethiopia and the second time was Uganda. And how did that challenge you now to go from two to four? Oh, it was a world of difference. Our second two were older. We trumped the birth order, which is really um, kind of right. against what people would advise in, in the adoption world. So they were on paper five and seven. So they had more years without family. They, their wounds more were trauma. More, more trauma. Their wounds were more obvious. And then it was, you know, all this. Then there's six interwoven relationships. And it wasn't just strangers becoming mommy and daddy and, and you know, son and daughter. It was strangers becoming siblings yes. overnight. So what did it, that look like? What's uh, an example of what happened? Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably what you can imagine. I mean, it would be like taking four children who had no connectedness to one another and all of a sudden saying, 
you're going to eat together, you're going to sleep together, you're going to play together. There was a lot of friction. Yeah. And a lot of, with our second two in particular, their wounds were more obvious. They did not, our oldest had no concept of family. She didn't know what it was like. I mean, she'd been raised in an orphanage. And so we were teaching her, you know, a daddy, this is what a daddy does. He hugs his daughter. Here's what a hug looks like. Wow. Just void of all of that kind void of, of love. All, yes. What did that show you in terms of your relationship with God as, oh you goodness. know, taking in these orphans, teaching them what it means to be in a family? There's so much metaphor there for our spiritual journey. There really is. I think of a time my daughter, actually just a week after we brought them home, our, our second two, we were at the beach. And I look, I'm counting heads, and all of a sudden I look, and one head is missing, which you don't want to have at the ocean. Right. And I look, and my oldest is running away from me um, down the beach. I'm calling her name, and she's not responding, and she's clutching onto kind of her shoulder and her neck. And I finally reach her, and I catch up to her, and it becomes clear that she'd been stung by a jellyfish. Oh. And I said to her, Lily, you know, why didn't you tell me? And I'm right here, and I'm hugging her. And in that moment, it was as if the Lord was whispering to me, this is a picture of your heart, Sarah. We run in pain. Wow. And and so our children have been this. I mean, you know, I think this is the story with a lot of adoptions. We think we're going to go rescue these children, you know, and provide them with such security. And the Lord's going, I'm going to teach you a whole lot about your orphan heart as you watch this life become a daughter and a son. And here you've adopted four kids, and then the Lord <laughs> mm-hmm. says, okay, Sarah and Nate, I'm going to bless you with your yes. biological child. Yes. I mean, when you became pregnant, what in the world were you thinking? We and how been, old were you at that point? Well, it was I was 36, and we had been married for 12 years. I mean, in some respects, we had continued to pray, God, open my womb. I mean, and that, that in and of itself is just a very precarious place to stay, knowing God can heal, mm. but he also, for some reason, has chosen not to, and staying in a place of hope. Um, had it been a forgotten dream? No, it was So you it, still held on to it? Oh, I held on to it. Even though it didn't look likely? I remember one year, actually several years before this, I was certain that I was pregnant. And it had, had in my mind, sort of contrived what the unveil would be. I was going to write my husband a note and let him know on Christmas Eve that I was pregnant. And I, it was keeping it from him because I thought it was going to be this wonderful secret that I'd get to unveil to him only to find out that I wasn't. And I told a friend, I, I mean, I had really held on for probably two, two and a half weeks thinking I was. And I told a friend, I'm so foolish. I can't believe I did this to myself again. <clears throat> And she said to me, Sarah, this is beautiful before God. You held on to hope. You know, I think of the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. Um, He comes and says, would you heal my servant? And and Jesus is prepared to go. And he says, but you don't need to come. I know you're a man in authority. You could say be healed and my servant could be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. Hmm. And my friend said to me, "You you had faith. Yeah. This was beautiful to God. Now, in some cases, we want to recognize that woman who's now maybe 42. Exactly. And it hasn't happened, and it may not happen. That also happens. Oh, it does. And I think that's what I held on to in those years. If I am 80 and my womb is still empty, I want to be one who made God marvel with my hope and my belief in him to do the impossible. That's an interesting point because how how does a person again no matter what the circumstance infertility or whatever it might mm-hmm. be how do you trust God even at the end of your life it never happened the way you wanted it to happen? Mm-hmm. How do you go to your grave 
saying, Lord, I love you. I trust you. I may even feel a little sorrow that I didn't get to experience this or that, Mm -hmm. but you trust in him. I mean, that's what you're saying, right? Well, and I think for me it was I fell in love with God Hmm. when my circumstances were not working. My greatest story in God is when nothing was working externally for me. And so I felt like at the end of my life, if I went to my grave with a barren womb and continued to pray that he would open it, I could say the greatest story of my life was that God came to me when I had nothing. I mean, and I had a lot, really, let's be honest. But I mean, when I didn't have the dreams that I thought I wanted, God wooed me. He allured me. That was the story over my life. Sarah, I want to get practical as well. I mean, um, there are people that are hearing you and they they are embracing what you're saying in terms of wanting to draw closer Mm. to God, even though their circumstances have been difficult. They're wanting to not have this sense of bitterness. Yeah. Uh, But let's give them some handles. How how do you do that um, when you're not feeling it? And I would add, when you look at it, our culture and even within the church, we're not good at developing an attitude of being content regardless of right. our circumstances. I mean, look around. Everything's telling us, don't be happy with the home you're in. Don't be happy mm. with the car you're driving. Don't be happy with the spouse you have. Mm-hmm. Don't be happy because discontent takes care of our pockets. Wow, <laughs> you're yes. buying things because we're feeding you. And I think we are developing more of that attitude. And as Christians... We have got to be disciplined to say, that's the world speaking to us. Mm-hmm. We've got to have a different attitude, a godly attitude. Uh, talk about how we can kind of leave those worldly things and thoughts behind and embrace God in this area of our attitude and our mm, trust in that's Him. That's a great question. I think one of the first things is really acknowledging, like having a real honest conversation with God and with ourselves that says, you know what, there are areas where I really don't believe your word. Come and help my unbelief. Just be honest. Just be honest. I think that there's a lot of hurdles to us really getting real with God in the area of vulnerability. It is uncomfortable to be vulnerable before God. And so we put a lot of things in place that prevent us from really doing that. And we say all the right words. And sometimes you just got to have that honest, honest conversation and go, I'm reading this word, God, and I don't believe it. I'm weak. Help my unbelief. And in some ways, I think it sets the stage that, you know what, this dialogue between the Lord and I isn't, I come telling him all the things I know, and I'm, but I come really weak and going, I am so broken. You've got to make something out of this brokenness, God, if I'm going to walk out of this bedroom today and be able to do life. Hmm. I think vulnerability is sort of a key to, to intimacy with God. And I think in so many ways, when he's allowing us to go through difficult circumstances, he's trying to create that vulnerability. Yes. Us. That's the irony of it. Yes. He's helping us to see where we are vulnerable. And then sometimes we don't react the right way, and then we don't get the lesson. Because it's uncomfortable. I mean, we all would love to climb out of our mess. Who wants to be messy? (laughs) So true. Let's clean it up. (laughs) In fact, uh, one thing that you mentioned in your book that caught my attention, many things did, Mm -hmm. but this one did especially. Because again, you can apply it in every way. But you talked about taking one word or one phrase from the Bible and just thinking about it throughout the day. Yes. Maybe throughout a week. I don't know. But um, I've tried to practice that. Thinking of the humility of God is yes. one that I, I, when I get trapped on that thought, I just, I marvel at that. He is the creator of the universe. Uh, and one of his core 
characteristics is humility. I mean, wow. Yeah. That's counterintuitive. Yeah. You're the most powerful entity in the universe. And you're humble. And you're humble. Uh, um, that makes me feel bad in a good way. Yeah. You know, that where I poke my pride out, that I need to think about who God is so that I can get right with him. Yeah. That's what you're talking about, right? Yes. That kind of reflection. What are some of those things that grab well, you? So it's, I, I call it the habit of adoration. For me, it is actually like putting God's word in my mouth and taking it outside of my morning quiet time. So, for example, Psalm 139, 1 says, God, you have searched me and you know me. So I can read that at 6.30 a.m. and it doesn't feel like I really need it. But you know what? 7 a.m. when all the kids wake up and I'm going, I got a college degree and I'm doing their laundry again and I'm washing their dishes again and he just threw up on me. You know, to say up the stairs carrying laundry, God, you searched me and you know me and you know this moment and you see me right now. And I set the laundry down and back down the stairs. You're searching me out even now. I feel hidden behind all these children, but you're still searching. And just having that dialogue with his word throughout the day, I put that card in front of the sink right where I'm doing dishes going, these kids, they just see the external. God, you know my heart. Or my life is hidden, but you know me right now. Uh Sarah, that's a, as you're describing that, I'm thinking that's a, a wonderful spiritual discipline, a very yes. simple thing that we can do. How is it different than 10 or 15 years ago when you did spiritual disciplines, when you showed up and did the dutiful Christian thing? That's a great question. I think the difference is I have a huge awareness right now of how weak I am. Then I was running and pushing and striving, and it was all unto getting God's favor. Now it's, I have a real deep understanding that he's crazy about me. He loves me and he loves me even when I mess up with my kids. And so that dialogue with him, it doesn't feel like I'm doing it to earn his favor. I woke up in the morning and he already was delighted to see my eyes open. So I'm going to him instead like the dad who's like, I really love you. Just sit on my lap. Versus before it was me as the daughter going, could I please just have a minute on your lap? Could I, what, what more could I do to get on your lap? Yeah, how can I please you? Yes. How much harder can I work? Yeah. Um, in fact, I have a good friend who uh, has worked very hard in ministry, and he was in the hospital on his deathbed, uh, and he asked the Lord, Lord, if you let me uh, live, I will work harder for you. And the irony was he's working so hard for him. That's why he was in the hospital. And that has been a good lesson for me because that's not a healthy perspective. God isn't a taskmaster in that context. He doesn't want you to work yourself to death for him at all. He wants you to enjoy life and be there. Certainly work Uh um, and work on his behalf, but um, not kill yourself. Yes. Um, Sarah, let me ask you this. Um, So particularly so many women, you just touched on this, but I want to pull this out. Mm Because, again, I think, um, like my wife, uh, she has a college degree, like I said the last time, in biochemistry, and she's raising these two boys, I mean, full-time, mm-hmm. working in the home full-time. And there are many, many women who have chosen what I would say is a very noble yes. task, which is to raise the next generation. Yes. And, again, our culture screams, you're stupid for doing oh. that. You're buying... Uh, this religious dogma, this bill of goods, this. But interestingly enough, a lot of women who may not have a religious 
connection, a faith connection, are also choosing this because they know something in their hearts telling them, this is good, it is right. Speak to that woman who is maybe torn, feeling like I'm giving my life away for something that I'm not feeling any kind of return. Mm -hmm. It's not satisfying me. Yes. Talk to her, speak to her about the choices that she's making. And is it good to lay down your life for another? I think often in my home when I'm with my kids of Jesus calling us to take up our cross and die daily. And I think when I'm all dressed and here for an interview and away from the house, I can feel pretty slick and together. It can feed the part of me that feels like I have my life under control. And I think children are uniquely messy. And there's something so beautiful about the Lord bringing us back to that kind of laying down that is really the inception of his life in us. At times, want, and I homeschool, so I'm with my children you know, all during the day. And at times I want to think, oh, but their mess is too much for me. And yet the Lord goes, this is where I meet you. I find you in mess. Hmm. So in some ways, I think it is there's a dance with the Lord to be had in the hidden moments of motherhood where he's going, I see you right now. I see that you have three other things you want to do, and you're holding that child on your lap and reading a book. I see that you'd really rather get dressed up and take a shower, and but this child is having a meltdown, and you're tending to her heart, and I love it. I feel like we get an invitation into the dialogue of God's heart towards us in the hidden ways in motherhood that when we're being seen, we don't always get to have. In addition to that, I mean, to kind of put the shoe on the other foot, there are many, many godly women who are working yes. outside the home. Yes. And I know many of them, and mm-hmm. I have board members who fit that profile. And I want to be mindful of them, that well, they're doing a good thing, too. Exa- and they're and making I do both. It work. I mean, in some ways, right. I'm wearing both shoes, so I understand. And I think my husband and I have been talking recently, even with the book having come out and just opportunities for interviews like this, there is still God whispering in those moments. You know, there is a, I, I suppose the big banner is he wants to have a dialogue with us that happens when no one is looking, and whether you're a public profile or whether you have a job that is actually getting you accolades or whether you're at home in your sweatpants, those are all opportunities for uh-huh. him to go, I see you right now, yeah. and I have words to speak over you. Even the woman who has you know, a boss who's giving her great reviews still needs to come alive under that private conversation with God where he goes, and I see the things that even your boss doesn't see. Right. And I know it can be controversial, but I I can remember this ministry, even Dr. Dobson talking about it's important for a parent to be home, especially with those young children. Mm. So even if a mom is working outside the home and dad can be home, I know some people that you're going to write us or email us. It's a good thing. Have a parent at the home, especially when the kids Mm -hmm. are young. And if it ends up being dad, that's okay. It can mm-hmm. work that way too. Um, this has been so good. Sarah, I love your heart. I mean, I just, I, I can hear it. I can feel it. And I believe all of our listeners can as well. And you have gone through some difficult things, but what I admire so much is how you have modeled how to stay close to God, how to draw even closer to him in circumstances that push many people away. And that is a wonderful example that we need more of in our culture right now. So thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, what a powerful story that Sarah has shared about God's goodness in her life, even in the midst of some really challenging circumstances. 
Our program was provided by Focus on the Family and on behalf of Jim Daly. Thanks for listening. I'm John Fuller.